Today is Wednesday, March 18, 2020. On this day in 1980, 12-year-old Frank Gotti was run over by a neighbor as he played outside his home in New York City. But Frank was the youngest son of John Gotti, the future head of the Gambino crime family, and the mafia wouldn't let the story end there. Welcome to Today in True Crime, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson, and today I'm joined by our guest host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, host of the podcast American Hysteria. On American Hysteria, Chelsea dives into urban legends, mass panics, and conspiracy theories to try to uncover why we believe these rumors and the real truths the wild stories are covering up. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Happy to have you. Chelsea's here to discuss some of the historical aspects of today's story, while I'll cover the narrative. Yeah, I'm fascinated by the story of Frank Gotti's death, and no one knows how to execute a cover-up like the Mafia, and in this case, a single tragedy spawned a web of suspicion. It's fascinating. That said, due to the graphic nature of today's crimes, listener discretion is advised. Extreme caution is advised for listeners under 13. Let's begin in the Queens neighborhood of Howard Beach on March 18, 1980, sometime in the late afternoon. Twelve-year-old Frank Gotti was having a great day. Earlier, he'd found out that he'd made the school football team. Initially, he was told that he hadn't made the cut. But after his mobster father, John Gotti, went to have a word with the coach, a spot had opened up. Frank didn't know what his father had said, but he didn't much care. He was just glad to be on the team. The excitement didn't stop there. After school, Frank had rushed home to play with friends from his neighborhood. One of those friends, Kevin, was riding his motorized minibike up and down the sidewalk of their quiet street. Everything about Kevin's minibike was cool. The sound the motor made, the cloud of exhaust in its wake, and the speed at which Kevin moved through the neighborhood, Frank had to have a turn. After several minutes of negotiating, Kevin agreed to let his friend ride the bike. With glee, Frank settled onto the seat, grasping the handlebars. He grinned as he sped along the pavement, feeling entirely invincible as 12-year-olds will. He was having so much fun that when he reached the end of the block, he kept going. The bike's noisy motor whipped him along the familiar streets until he was six blocks from home. Ahead of him, the sidewalk was taken up by a large dumpster full of trash and demolition detritus from a nearby construction site. As he couldn't go any further, he decided to turn back. He pulled the handlebars to the right, turning the bike onto the road. At that moment, 51-year-old John Favara was on his way home from work. The sun was in his eyes as he passed the construction site near his house, and he didn't see the slight figure of Frank Gotti speed into the path of his car. With a sickening, dull thud, Favara hit the young boy. As Frank's friends ran towards where he lay crumpled on the road, neighbors heard cries for help. An ambulance was swiftly summoned while people tried to help Frank. 
one witness recognized the boy and called the Gotti house to let Frank's family know what had happened. Within minutes, his mother, Victoria, was by his side. She watched in anguish as her youngest child was lifted into the back of an ambulance. Frank was rushed to the hospital, but by the time he arrived at the trauma unit, it was too late. When Frank's father, John, arrived, the doctors gave him the heartbreaking news. His son was dead. Now, someone had to pay. After this, a member of the Gotti family demands vengeance. Now, back to the story. On March 18, 1980, 12-year-old Frank Gotti was riding a motorized minibike in the street near his home in Queens. As he made a sharp turn from behind a dumpster, he was struck and killed by his 51-year-old neighbor, John Favara. My guest host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, is here to discuss the investigation into Frank's tragic death and how the Gotti family took justice into their own hands. Thanks, Vanessa. Uh, In the aftermath of the tragedy, police investigated the accident to determine exactly what had happened. They spoke with Favara, who insisted he hadn't seen Frank before he hit the 12-year-old with his car. The late afternoon sun had temporarily blinded him to Frank's sudden appearance from behind the dumpster. In the end, the police declared Frank's death an accident and found that no one was at fault. But to Frank's family, the death was cause for anger. Understandably, Frank's mother Victoria was grief-stricken. According to This Family of Mine, a memoir by Frank's sister, also named Victoria, their mother attempted suicide several times in the days following the accident. Soon, though, Victoria's grief turned to rage. To hear the younger Victoria Gotti tell it, Favara showed little regard for the life that he had inadvertently taken. In her memoir, she accused Favara of driving drunk the day of the accident. She posits that Frank's body was dragged some 200 feet under Favara's wheels before angry neighbors jumped on the car and forced him to stop. This seems unlikely. Most accounts reported that Favara, himself the adoptive father of two children, was devastated by the incident. But when he went to visit the Gaudis to apologize, Victoria was having none of it. She greeted him with a baseball bat and took several swings. It was clear to many people in the neighborhood that John Favara was in danger. Killing the son of a known mobster was not something you could just get away with. Before long, he began to receive menacing signs that he was no longer safe. One morning in May, he woke to find his car had been vandalized. Spray-painted across the paneling was a single red word, murderer. Another day, when retrieving the mail, he found a disturbing delivery, a photograph of Frank Gotti and an announcement card from the boy's funeral. According to those close to Favara, he sought advice from an acquaintance with mob connections. The advice he got? leave the neighborhood and start over somewhere else. So he planned on doing just that. He listed his family home and the sale was due to go through on July 31st of that year. But just three days before the sale closed, John Favara disappeared. The father of two left his job at the Castro Convertible Factory, but never made it home. 
Witnesses claim to see men beating Favara before shooting him and bundling him into a van. The squeal of tires tore through the quiet evening as the van sped away. Days after Favara disappeared, police showed up at the Gotti family home to question John and Victoria about the incident. Investigators knew of John's mob connections and reasoned that he might have ordered a hit in retaliation for the death of his son. But the Gottis were no help to the police. They had been on vacation in Florida when Favara had disappeared, and they had the receipts to prove it. And just like that, the trail went cold. With little else to go on, the disappearance of John Favara seemed destined to remain a mystery. In the following years, rumors circulated that Favara's body had been put into a cement-filled oil drum and dropped into the ocean. According to neighborhood gossip, Victoria had demanded retribution for the death of her son, and the Gambino crime family sought to enact that vengeance. But for almost three decades, stories about John Favara's disappearance and presumed death remained just that, stories. That is, until 2009 court documents shed light on what really happened. According to witnesses, John Gotti's associates killed Favara. Then, his friend and fellow Gambino member, Charles Carneglia, dissolved Favara's body in acid before dumping the remains into the ocean. Despite these graphic details coming to light, there has never been an arrest made in connection to the death of John Favara, and his remains have never been found. John Gotti died of throat cancer in 2002 at a hospital for federal prisoners, where he was held for unrelated crimes. He was buried next to his beloved son, Frank. John Favara's children, meanwhile, have no grave to visit for their own father, whose fate was sealed the day he accidentally killed Frank Gotti. Thanks for listening to Today in True Crime. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Thanks again, Chelsea, for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. And everyone, you can find my podcast, American Hysteria, on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And I hope you'll come over and listen. If you enjoyed this episode, check out the episodes of ParCast's original Kingpins on Mafia bosses Carlo Gambino and Anthony Casso, two men involved in the same criminal underworld as the Gaudis. Today in True Crime is a ParCast original. You can find more episodes of Today in True Crime and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Today in True Crime, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Today in True Crime on Spotify, just open the app and type Today in True Crime in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back with a brand new episode tomorrow in True Crime. 
Today in True Crime was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Andy Waits, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Today in True Crime was written by Joel Callan, with writing assistance by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson. 